Welcome to Raising OKC Kids, Conversations with Metro Family in Oklahoma City. I'm Erin Page, and today I'm joined by two incredible local leaders and parents to continue our series on talking with kids about race and racism. Stephanie Williams and Ernest Odunzi are each passionate about improving conversations around racism and race equity in our families and out in the community. For our listeners, this is our third panel in this series with our first focusing on starting these conversations about racism with young children, our second on engaging in the community to fight for racial justice, and today we're going to focus in on engaging our tweens and teens in these important conversations. We will start with introductions. Stephanie Williams is the Executive Director of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion for Norman Public Schools, a brand new position for the district. Williams served as chair of the district's Diversity Enrichment Council over the past year, and she's been with the district since 2005 as an educator, principal, and assistant principal, primarily with middle and high school students. She was selected as Oklahoma Assistant Principal of the Year in 2018 by the Cooperative Council of Oklahoma Secondary Administrators. Stephanie earned her bachelor's degree from the University of Oklahoma and her master's degree in education administration from the University of Central Oklahoma. Stephanie has been married to her wonderful husband, Mike, for 15 years. They have two amazing daughters, Brooklyn in first grade and Carrie at OU. Stephanie is a proud member of Delta Sigma Theta Sorority, Inc. Welcome, Stephanie. And we have Ernest Odunzi Jr., who was born and raised in Oklahoma City and has been known to say, one day his bones will be covered in red clay. He received his BA from the University of Central Oklahoma and plans to pursue a master's in divinity soon. After poor life choices led to a felony conviction, Ernest was mentored and began serving in a small local church plant where he met his now wife and best friend, Monique. Married in 2011, the Odunzis have two rambunctious sons and a beautiful baby daughter. They have dedicated their lives to fostering community and raising leaders in Northeast Oklahoma City where they live, work, and play. Ernest is a director of local nonprofit Restore OKC. Welcome, Ernest. Thank you both so much for being here to share your unique perspective as we all seek to grow and move forward together. So as we start with this conversation about teens, um, I don't have teenagers quite yet. I hear they can be very opinionated. When it comes to broaching this conversation about race and racism with this age group, keeping in mind that many of them have already formed opinions, how can parents or mentors or educators approach this in a way that feels safe for them to share those opinions, share difficult situations they've experienced, and maybe even to process biases they've developed? Stephanie, will you start? I sure will. And Erin, thank you um, for having me. I'm, I'm excited uh, to engage in this conversation. Um, I will start off by saying that it's very important uh, that we have these conversations with our kids. Uh, there are age appropriate ways to do it, of course. So uh, discussing race and racism with a first grader is going to look and sound different than you having that conversation with a 10th grader. So, you know, adults must first do our own internal assessment before we have the conversation. So, um, uh, you mentioned uh, bias, and, and we all have those. So I equate um, 
having bias to all of our first thoughts. Um, but the important thing is recognizing that um, what those are, first of all, and then ensuring they're not your last thought. So that's what you kind of call, that's what you call checking your bias at the door. Um, so uh, we all heard when you know better, you do better. And so you cannot have the conversation if you haven't done the pre-work yourself um, as the parent uh, to make sure that you truly understand. And, and also, um, also realizing that you're not gonna have all of the answers and um, that's okay, but it, you've, you've, you can't just act as if injustices don't exist or racism doesn't exist. Uh, so my challenge to people is to start and figure out what that starting point is for yourself. So is that a book you're gonna read? Is it a documentary you're gonna watch? Is it a, a, a thoughtful conversation you're gonna sit down and have with someone? An article you're gonna read? Uh, that's how you're gonna empower yourself. Um, and you have to empower yourself if you're going to be able to empower your child to have those courageous conversations. So um, that, that's, that's what I would say would be a good starter for everybody. That's such great advice, Stephanie, and you're so right that as the parents, we've got to do our own work first before we can, or we've got to start our journey before we enter into the journey uh, alongside our kids. Ernest, what would you add about broaching this conversation with tweens and teens? Yeah, and again, thanks for in, inviting me on today. Um, I would say, number one, I believe what Stephanie said is so important. You can, you can only export what you possess yourself. And therefore, if you aren't on your own journey in the area of race, racial reconciliation, it's going to be very hard for you to coach someone else to a place that you have not been. So we all, at some level, have to engage these conversations. <clears throat> but even prior to getting there, I would just take another step back and say, whether it's kids, young adults, adults, or even seniors, I believe there's two things of us must have. And before you can get into tough conversations like this, um, you need to have two character qualities, and that is humility and curiosity. Uh, to a young adult, I would say, engaged in a posture of humility. Humility is the ability to say, I can be wrong. And if you can walk into any situation with the thought process, there's a chance that I'm wrong or my information is incomplete. If, if you can start from that place, then you can move to the next position of, okay, now and I add to my incompleteness. That may be a relationship, that may be a resource, but before you're even going to be able to ask the right questions, you need to know that you don't have all the answers. But in addition to that, the final thing I would say is um, I have some, uh, I got five practical things that I teach to every young adult in order to be um, with their lives. Uh, but even, even before we get to those five, there's the one big one. And that, that one big one is you have to get yourself out of the center. Um, if you think that your living situation is normal, um, you're gonna begin to project it onto other populations. So if you come from a context that is upper income, 
you may think that everyone just has those same resources and uh, stability that you have. Until you can get yourself out of the center and put other people in the center and see their experience, um, you're not going to be able to have all the tools necessary to be able to um, unravel some of the historic and current trauma that we're experiencing uh, during this time. There's such great points. I love that you point out humility and curiosity. And, and those are great places for, for all of us to start, no matter what our age is. Um, so as I've talked recently with local teens and leaders of color, including Ernest, one of your incredible interns from Restore OKC, one piece of this conversation that they feel is really critical to focus in on is the idea that language matters. This age group, tweens and teens, may use phrases flippantly that are inherently racist and sometimes maybe without realizing it. Um, I'll share some examples that some local teens have shared with me recently, saying things like, yeah, she's cute for a black girl, or Asian people are responsible for bringing the coronavirus here, or Latinx people don't belong here. How can we help this age group understand the bias and racism within language like this and th just this general idea that their language matters? Ernest, would you take this one first? Yes, uh, language is very important. And unfortunately, we live in a day where even talking about language has become political. Um, there are some things that you say that are right, and there are some things that you say that are wrong point blank period. It doesn't matter where you fall on your political spectrum or cultural competencies. There are some things that are right, some things that are wrong. Now, the, ch now the, the difficulty that we run into is who gets to determine what's right and who's wrong. And in our nation, it has historically been those who have had uh, power. And in our nation, it's gonna be predominantly Caucasians and especially white men, historically. Um, so what do you do with that? For some people, they're going to say, well, we need to cancel white men. That's going to be some people's uh, response. Some people are going to say uh, the way we actually combat this is not to cancel them. We just need to cuss them out. <laughs> we just need to tell them how wrong they've been, and we need to demand that X, Y, and Z happens. Both of them have validity within them, but by themselves, they're incomplete. Uh, so what I would say to any young adult is, number one, there is a wrong, right and wrong. And if someone says to you that what you have said or done is wrong, or it uh, came off as uh, downputting, what your responsibility is, is to take it serious. So even me as a male, if I'm talking to another one of my male friends and I say, hey, you, you acting like a whatever word you want to insert there. If they say it's wrong, even though I just meant it as a joke, it is, a, it is my responsibility to take their pain and suffering seriously. So to any young adult, that's the, there's right and there's wrong, be on the right side. And you have a conscience, you know when something that you're saying, someone uh, rightfully or wrongfully could take it as wrong, if it can be even taken as wrong, 
bend your patterns in a posture of humility to accommodate them. That's so great. That's such a powerful framework for, for this conversation and this question in particular. Stephanie, what would you add to that? And totally agree uh, with um, everything Ernest said that uh, said um, just now. I I would just add um, this is a great question because what you're speaking about um, are microaggressions. So you know all of those little things that may be said or done. Um, and so what what often happens is people easily dismiss them, right? or they explain it away, um, then over time, all those little things start to accumulate. So um, I was reading, um, it's a book called So You Want to Talk About Race. And what I love, the example that she used in that book is equating those microaggressions to bee stings. And so one random bee sting may not be bad. However, <laughs> um, a few random bee stings every day of your life will impact the quality of your life and also your relationship with those bees. So it's, it's important to understand we, we can't explain it away. And I loved what Ernest said, because I just want to reiterate, when you have done or said something that offends someone, you are the person that needs to make that right. You, you are the person that needs to apologize if you've offended. You don't need to question why it offended them because it, it offended them. And so I, I think it's important to understand that yes, while we give grace, we know, and that's kind of part of who we are is making sure we're educating people along the way. Ultimately, we want people to be better. Um, but I, I would also say that yes, it is not a person of color's responsibility um, to call these things out or to prove that, oh, that person didn't really mean that. No, they have good intentions. Um, it's on that person to do that. And so uh, everybody has to be involved in the work. Um, you've got to call out the microaggressions when you see them or hear them. And as he said, how do you know if it is a microaggression? Well, 99%, 99.9%, I would say, of the time, when you hear it, it will make you uncomfortable. You will not feel right about it. So those are things that you, and, and you will know that it just won't sit well with you. And so that's when you say something, correcting and addressing those things in the moment is what will bring about more growth, awareness, and then hopefully what we're all going for here is change. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And important. Aaron, Aaron, can I add yes. something, please? Absolutely. Uh, what I would add is, um, 1000% agree with everything and it is uh it's within it's every person's responsibility to know what cultural cul-de-sac they live in every person has a culture you you may have been raised in an affluent culture or a poor culture you may have grown up in a um more honor shame context or you may have grown up in a western context everyone has a culture and what we tend to do is group ourselves with people that are close to we represent and that's natural to you uh, because we are tribal mammals um, and to deny that is ultimate insanity we're tribal people so just know that um, now 
if we stay in our cultural cul-de-sacs, we tend to surround ourselves with people and environments that make us comfortable. And every person has to is take audit of their cultural cul-de-sac. Where do you live? What's just normal to you? But then you have to challenge yourself to bust out of your cultural cul-de-sac and put yourself in a position that is uncomfortable. Um, and for some people, it's going to be altering your language. So some words I just don't use anymore because we're in such an acute season. Um, microaggressions, even though I 1000% believe in my I don't use it because it triggers a certain population. And I know that. Therefore, I will just define it instead of saying um, uh, aggression. I'll, I'll just say, you made me uncomfortable, brother. <laughs> you know, just to get over it. Because there's so many buzzwords that if you drop one of them, it's kind of, sort of like letting off a nuke. And you just can't have any conversation after that word is used. And so in certain circles, I'm not going to use, um, I'm not going to use microaggression. I'm not going to use social justice. I I'm not going to use certain words because I know it's going to trigger them. And in certain, certain other circles, I'm not going to ask for your preferred pronouns because I know that that's, we just can't have a conversation after I ask you that. Um, but all of us have to be aware and, and um, make sure that we are those that may not fit into our cultural cul-de-sac. Mm. I'm really glad you brought that up, Ernest. I think that's so important. And that um, getting out of those cultural cul-de-sacs, I think, is when we start to realize more that language we may be using is harmful. That's how we learn is by getting in touch with those other cultural cul-de-sacs. And then, Stephanie, like you talked about being brave and willing to call out those microaggressions when we hear them. Um, that leads right into our next question. Um, you know, as our kids get older and gain more independence, it can be freeing for parents and it can also be terrifying um, on a lot of different levels. So as we're teaching them to go out into the world to be who they are, um, how can we instill in them those values and behaviors of being anti-racist, of call, teaching them how to call out racism when they see it, um, or teaching them what to do when they experience racism? And how different do those conversations have to look for black and brown kids versus white kids? Stephanie, would you start with this one? Sure. I mean, you know, so a lot of the words you, you threw out, so anti-racist and um, you know, we think about equity and inclusion, all of those words you hear a lot. Um, but ultimately, those are all action words. So, um, you know, many times people will talk about them, uh, but not really with any thought on the part they play um, in disrupting the system. And so that that's the action part. So what asking questions like, what are you doing? Um, and, and what are you teaching your child, your child to do to disrupt that status quo? Uh, your child is going to learn these things. Um, they just are. And so it's, it's kind of up to you on whether or not you decide who you want them to learn it from. 
uh, because when they get out in the world, they're going to have experiences and they're going to, um, you know, encounter lots of people with maybe different thoughts and different perspectives. And that's the beauty of the world we know is being able to, you know, go out and, and, and meet and have to, you know, converse with people who don't necessarily think like you. But ultimately, you you want your kid to have that um, strong foundation. So it's going to start with creating that climate at home. Um, you are the best example that your your, your child has. Um, and then, as a parent, you know, as you're equipping your child for the uh, the world, I would ask, what are you exposing your your kids to? And I think this kind of you know, plays a little bit into some of our, our, our discussion we just had. So um, about that cultural cul-de-sac. So what what environment are they in? Um, what, what Who do they play with? Um, who do they hang out with? What schools are they going to? What do those look like? Are you putting you and yourself and, and your kids in situations where they have to interact with people who don't necessarily look like them, think like them? Uh, these are all questions that we have to ask ourselves. I would tell you that, you know, parents of black, brown, and indigenous kids uh, have lived experiences. So our conversations are going to be different because we walk through life daily in our skin. And so with that comes real world experiences that you have to sit down and discuss with your child. A white parent uh, doesn't necessarily have to sit down and talk with their son about what they may do when they're stopped by a, pol by a police officer, uh, but, but black parents do have that conversation. So when I talk to my seven-year-old daughter about things she may see or hear, um, I always give her words to say, and I always make sure that she's, she, she is understanding. Um, and we have that conversation because, you know, when they go to school and they may um, experience something or see, see um, another kid exposed to something, um, I want, you know, you want to make sure your kids are prepared for that. So talking your kids through those what ifs is important. Uh, because then they feel equipped and prepared uh, to respond when they encounter it. It's great advice, Stephanie. Ernest, what would you add to that? So I give the same advice, uh, whether I'm traveling and speaking to a, a group in the suburbs or if I'm traveling and speaking to a group on the block. Um, I give the, the same, same five-step program to, to every and adult. Um, number one, find, find uh, and, and let me, I heard your question of coaching someone to speak about racism. Um, even prior to that, I'm just going to lay the foundation because the reason we struggle with racism the reason that racism is rampant is because we have a purpose deficiency in our nation. Um, and when individuals don't have purpose for their lives, you tend to lash out and fall into destructive um, lifestyles, including racism. So these are the five things that I coach any community on. Number one, find your spark. Find the thing that makes you come alive. Find the thing that if you weren't being paid, you would just wake up and do that. Uh, find your spark. Find the thing that gets you out of bed every day and also help others discover theirs. So that's number one. 
find your spark. Number two, um, for a young adult, graduate. <laughs> graduate. Stay in school. If you do not graduate, get that degree. The chances of you being successful, especially if you're a minority, are going to drastically diminish. Get that piece of paper. Um, and that's why we started our paid internships so that we, we have 15 paid interns that we're incentivizing to stay in school and get a full ride scholarship. So that's number two. Number three, um, find your spark, uh, graduate school. Number three, get a trade, a trade. Find something that you're good at that you can put your hands to so that you can get paid and and live a self-sustained life um do that and then the final one final two but also i'm gonna try to say this in the most sensitive way um get your life stay where you have a kid just get stable before you introduce a child into your life because that child is gonna take most of your energy that you're gonna need to, to do some of the practical things in life. And so that's the same advice I give to everyone. Um, go beast mode on making sure that you are overcoming the obstacles in your life and putting yourself in a position to thrive. Because if you do not, you will fall victim to the trap of poverty you'll fall victim to the um to the biased and racist um justice systems that we have if you don't do those things you are not putting yourself in the best position to thrive that's all great advice ernest um i love how passionate you are um, in talking about getting our tweens and teens to graduate um, and talking about their experiences in school and, and how different that looks for minority students, Stephanie and I and several other wonderful local leaders have been in conversation about race equity in schools. How do our schools at least strive to achieve that? Um, so for our students, our tweens and teens who are black, brown, Asian, indigenous, how can we as parents empower them to have conversations with their teachers or their fellow classmates about having more opportunities to learn about leaders who look like them, opportunities to share their culture? Stephanie, would you take this one? Yes. Um, so, you know, having been an educator um, for almost 20 years and um, having you know the benefit of being in different schools um you know and seeing the different cultures of, of some schools um you know i think again uh that converse the conversation or having the conversations with your kid um to make sure they're comfortable uh while we want to empower our students of color um, and our indigenous students to have their, to use their voice uh, to ask questions um, about content maybe that they're covering in class that they don't, they don't think is representative. 
or of different races or culture cultures or they don't think is um uh, uh or that may be offensive i think we need to understand though we want to empower them to do that that's what we do as educators but we also have to understand that it is not their responsibility to carry that load so i'm excited about just the role i have right now in the school district because as adults, we should be advocating for all students to have a voice. That is what we should be doing. We should be creating that environment where students can have, you know, that choice in their learning. We need to be more intentional about our curriculum. What are we teaching? What lens are we teaching it from? What books do you walk into the library and see? Are they representative of the different cultures and um, you know backgrounds that people come from um, and races? Uh, all of this is it, what instructional materials do we do we have our our kids exposed to? What do you have up on your walls? Those are all things that um, are very important. Um, and you know, in education now, you know we call it being culturally responsive pedagogy. But at the end of the day, it is what's right for kids uh, being aware of their identities all of us have our have our own identities and i always say when i'm talking to you know teachers administrators whoever about this is that you know we're all walking around with our own luggage we, we're carrying our luggage and within that luggage is everything about us that makes us who we are and that should not be ignored when kids walk into our schools and we need to foster an environment where they feel like they don't have to fit in to be able to be successful in our schools they should be able to be who they are bring who they are um, and we should be using that to empower our students so um yeah i, I just it's something that I, I feel passionate passionately about and i'm just excited to be a, in a position to where i can help support people with doing that work I'm so glad you said that, Stephanie. Well, it's important to teach students to use their voice that that they should not be the ones bearing that burden. And of course, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and we have a really long way to go in terms of striving for race equity in our schools, in our curriculum, in our education system. Um, and we're releasing our article about race equity in schools in October, which you have provided and other local leaders have provided such great advice to parents and students about how to get engaged in this. And this is, this has to be a community wide effort. This has to be all of us coming together, parents, educators, administration uh, to, to create some lasting change. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about the work that you are doing in, in Norman and, and excited to be able to, to release that great advice that you've shared with our parents. Uh, Ernest, I want to come to you um, to look at some ways that we can engage our tweens and teens in the community to fight for social and racial justice now. Um, you do great work, obviously, at Restore OKC. You provide a lot of opportunities for engagement. So, so what would you suggest are some great ways that tweens and teens can get engaged in the community? Yeah, um, speaking to two different groups, as for, for parents that may be listening, um, one of the best ways to lead your young adult into being active in the community is to look for those opportunities to get them outside of their community. Um, so if you, uh, like me, so there was a point in time when I was like, I don't have any Hispanic friends. 
And as I'm watching the TV, as DACA is happening, I'm learning stuff for the first time because DACA, that's their issue. That's not my issue, my mindset. And so I had to have some brothers and sisters come and lead me into understanding even my Southside community. And over time, their thing became my thing. For parents, allow your kids' thing to become your thing and serve with them. Find those opportunities, but not only the opportunities that you're comfortable in, if you're used to going and stocking the baby supply store, um, that's wonderful. Great first step. But then the next question is, what's your additional step? Um, maybe you've been serving uh, at-risk parents in a predominantly uh, Caucasian community. Maybe your next step is to get into a minority community and figure out the differences between the two communities. Why does this clinic have this and this clinic doesn't have any of that? Those other communities, it just opens your mind and it allows you to see for the first time, maybe not the first time, but it allows you to see at a different capacity the disparities between communities. So serve with your young adult and ask them what's their passion and go serve with them based on where their passion is. So that's one side. Um, on, the, on the other end, I would say, um, as far as getting engaged, um, look for doing good work. I guarantee population that you have a burden for. And what I mean by burden is, when that commercial comes on the TV, you're crying. It, whether it's the starving child, that's your burden. Whether it's the women being trafficked, that's your burden. What is it that comes on the TV screen and it just creates a rage within you? That's your burden. Um, find that burden, guarantee in your city, in your town, there is someone working to alleviate pain and suffering for that burden. Find them and connect with good work that's already happening. And I guarantee you, someone is doing it. That's such great advice. I love that to find find what your kids are passionate about, especially those tweens and teens. They're developing their their passions, what they love to do, and how they can use their talents to serve. And then as parents, like you said, look look for those things that that make you cry. My problem is all the commercials make me cry, so I want to do all the things. Um, as we wrap up this conversation today, I, I want to end with asking both of you. How is this next generation inspiring you? Do they give you hope that perhaps we can see a truly long-lasting movement for social and racial justice, that that could actually become our norm? Stephanie, will you start on this one? Yes. Um, funny, because I was just having a conversation about this very thing with my dad the other day. Um, you know, he attended an all-Black elementary school um, because, you know, they had not um, integrated yet. And, and my uncle and I were having a recent conversation about telling me a story of traveling for a track meet. Um, my uncle, he's in his 70s, and they stopped in a small town to eat. Uh, the owner told his coach that my uncle would need to go around back and eat there. Um, and so he tells me that story about um, 
the coach, you know, saying loading them all back up on the bus and um, they kind of went on and, uh, you know, just didn't, didn't eat there. And, you know, these are stories, like I said, that I, you know, hearing from my dad, you know, my uncle, and, and these are stories and many others have, they've been lived experiences for um, uh, lots of people of color in this world. And so this next generation, when you ask me about the hope, um, I am very hopeful uh, because as I mentioned earlier, um, it's really about disrupting that system. And what I'm hopeful about is I, I feel like this next generation want to, they want to do that. And a lot of them are doing that. And so what I mean is, are you an enabler or are you a dismantler? Um, do you just sit and talk about the things that aren't fair? just or may not be equitable or are you out there doing something about those so it's about just making your voice heard making sure that you know barriers that are in place for other people are removed and um everybody plays a part in making sure you know that that happens um or that you know making that happen removing those barriers i think that that's um really really important so i i am very very hopeful Thank you for sharing that, Stephanie. Ernest, what about you? Does this next generation inspire hope for you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, core to what we do, um, all of our directors, they have a instruction that what your job is, is to work yourself out of a job. Um, so we planted this little thing called Restore OKC, but ultimately what I'm hopeful is that one of the individuals that is already within our circle they may be in elementary school right now they may be in high school right now but eventually one of them will be replacing me and every other person in this building that's the hope um and we're seeing it um this year we had our first intern that started off at one of our gardens um, all three elementary schools in our Northeast OKC community. Uh, we've, uh, we've built two gardens for two of the schools and we're hoping to do the third school this year. And uh, we take every student three times a year into the gardens and do lessons on just the beauty of creation, nutrition, all the beautiful things that come from uh, gardening. Uh, we have a student that started with us in fourth grade and she was a firecracker. Uh, the volunteers giving the instructions. The kids aren't listening. Y'all better start listening. She, she's that one. Don't mess with her. Um, and so she started with us in fourth grade, and this was our seventh grade uh, intern. She was able to start as a paid intern this year. Um, we have interns right now that are coming up with their own clothing lines. Uh, as a matter of fact, they run and operate our aquaponics houses, our neighborhood grocery store, our young people, because they are capable. All we have to do, and I'll end with this, um, Restore OKC, what we exist for is to learn and teach others how to use their privilege for the privilege of others. That's what we exist for, is to teach others how to use their privilege for the privilege of others. All of us have privilege. Um, for us in this situation, we're older, we have relationships, um, we have a little bit of wisdom, and therefore, that's a privilege we have. We can give it away to, to this next generation of leaders. And therefore, 
they're going to be able to run farther and faster than we ever could. And so, yes, I am very hopeful for this generation because of the brilliance and the amazing things that they do on a day in day out basis. Thank you so much for that. And I will echo that. Ernest, you have some incredible students um, who, who are already and will continue to be leaders in Oklahoma City. I'm, I'm excited right along with you to watch um, what they accomplish next. Thank you both so much for joining me today. Um, this has been a really wonderful conversation. You both are inspiring to me and I know will be to our entire community of parents. Um, I have no doubt you are raising the next generation of inspiring leaders for Oklahoma City in your own homes, in our schools, and out in the community. Thanks everyone for watching. Join us next time on Raising OKC Kids.